in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And as you're seated, turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, and we will be in Genesis 14. If you don't have a Bible, we do have a number of Bibles on the back wall. We just encourage you to pick one up and follow along uh, together with us. You're welcome to keep a Bible as you, uh, if you would, if you need a Bible. Been a pretty heavy week with uh, news of hurricanes, and we had a significant funeral here this last week with the passing of Alona Bailey. We also um, you know, have a number of hospitalizations yesterday and today, and so you know, by the grace of God, here we are today. And, and there is good news with some things too. I, you know, looking at the both family and Bill and Connie had a new grandson born yesterday. Right, Gabriel, both born to BJ and Rachel, both, and congratulations to you, and also the Shigleys. I think Mark was here first service, so congratulations to them as well. So that that is indeed good news. But you know, as we deal with um, even celebrations like that or challenges of life, sometimes we wonder how we can help people. And I think our passage today that we're going to look at is is talking about helping. It gives a picture of how to help people. People who are in need. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Genesis chapter 14. Um, and what I'll do today is I'll read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll work the rest out in the sermon. So this is Genesis 14, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. In the day of Am- Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketelamur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelamur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Asheroth, Karanaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to El Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelamur, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we look at this text here today, Father, would you help us to see how your word examines our lives how it directs our lives, and it calls us into action, calls us to faith, calls us to obedience. But God, for us to get those things, it's your Holy Spirit that has to work. Your Holy Spirit takes his words, which are true and right and inspired, 
and brings them to bear upon our hearts and upon our minds. And so me, help me be clear. Father, may your message just strike home with how we would to live it to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we can't help but be affected by the events that happen all around the world, and, and sometimes in very surprising ways, th- ways that we didn't expect them to affect us. You know, over this last year, we've experienced as, as a world this war um, in Ukraine and how it's affected gas prices, how it's affected inflation, how it's affected food prices. Uh, we come out of a, of a pandemic and, and the effects that that's had on the labor market. And, and maybe that's how it affected how, uh, how we go to the store, um, the price that we're paying for our food, the price we're paying for our gas, all of those things. Um, we can know the death of a loved one, someone who's very close to us or close to a friend. And we know that this is something that's outside of our control, but we're still so uh, deeply affected by it. And the people around us are so deeply affected by it. Or, or we can know what's happened over this last weekend with the hurricane, Hurricane Ian striking in Florida and then in South Carolina. And, and the devastating effects that that's had on so many lives over the last uh, few hours. Um, these things are outside of our control, but they affect us and they affect others. And we might ask, how can we help others in those cases? How can we help those who have faced tragedy? How can we help those who face loss? And oftentimes, this is what we want to do. We want to reach out in love. We want to reach out and help. Um, you know, we want to do what we can to come alongside and lead a helping hand. Today, when we look at this story, you know, we want to look at the readiness that it takes in order to um, come alongside somebody who is in need. What does it take to be ready? And in order to be the help and the hope that we, uh, that, that we want to be or need to be, we need to have a certain amount of freedom inside of our lives, uh, and a certain, certain amount of spiritual freedom to see things and be able to jump in there. That's because it's not always easy to help. I mean, sometimes it's just hard because, um, you know, not everybody can help everybody all the time. We have jobs, we have families, we have responsibilities that keep us sometimes from doing the things that we might want to do to help someone. Uh, but if our life is described by, const, by, by never helping out others who are in need, you know, we might really wonder, are we missing out on opportunities that we should be jumping into? Are there things that maybe we should be paying better attention to and we're just not seeing them? Uh, some people are so entangled with their own problems that they can't help. There's so, so much going on in their own lives that they're unaware of the hurt that's going around them or they're so wrapped up with what's happening there that they can't go um, lend a hand. Some are so disengaged from the world that they don't really even see the problems. They've checked out. They've quite quitted their ways into not seeing the needs around them. And some are so full of love for themselves that they don't do anything. That when it comes to action, there's no action that's there because of the there's little self-interest in it. But what does God have for us? And what God has for us, we see throughout the scripture that we engage the world, we, we help the world, we bring hope into the world, that even as we gather today, we build a distinct community of followers of Christ, people who are uh, becoming like Christ, um, endeavoring to, to learn from him and to put on his character, but then going out in the world and doing some good out in the world. And if we're gonna do that, the one thing we can't see happen is get entangled up in the world. We, we stay near to God. That's, we come together to remind us of the mission, the calling that we have before us. 
and to continue to walk in it. And so we bring Christ with us, whether we go to work in our side of our communities and neighborhood. Um, we're reminded every day, every Sunday, that we go nowhere by accident. We bring Christ with us wherever we go. And this reminds us of Christ's prayer, Jesus' prayer for his church in John chapter 17. And he, before he dies on the cross, he, he prays this to his father in John 17, 15. He said, I do not ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So we like to summarize this verse, um, and others like it, to say that, that Christ wanted his, Jesus wanted his disciples to be in the world, but not of the world. He wanted his disciples to be in the world to bring the gospel, to bring hope, to see human flourishing in his name, but not to get so wrapped up in the world that they, that they fall under its sin and, over, and under its evil. Jesus came into this world to save us from sin so that we could then be witnesses to the world of, of his grace, of his mercy, of the power of the gospel. And all this, when we understand Jesus' call to us, it, it changes our mission, it changes our sense of purpose inside of this life. So in understanding this, what we want to do today is to look at the first war that's recorded in the Bible. I don't think it's necessarily the first war that ever happened. It's just the first war that happens to be recorded in the Bible. We wouldn't be surprised that war would happen when sin comes in the world, when evil comes in the world, as people look out for their own interests and other people get in their way. It's no surprise that, that war would happen. People would try to force others into their will, into their way. So here we come into this first war. Um, I'm going to call it the War of the Nine Armies. It probably has a Bible name. I didn't look it up because I like the War of the Nine Armies. It sounds like Lord of the Rings-ish sort of thing, you know, like it ought to have a, a 10-part Amazon series after it or something. But it's the War of the Nine Armies. Um, and of all of the actors who are involved in this, two really stand out. And thankfully, I can pronounce their names. It's Abraham and Lot. We can talk about them. Right, and what we're going to see is that one gets entangled up in the world and is unable to help, and the other um, is, stays devoted to God and he's able to help um, the one who is in trouble. Now, let's look how they get wrapped up in the conflict. I, I read the text is there. And as I said, it's a war between nine armies. You have five on the one side, you have four on the other. And the team of five armies is, is working to escape a life of servitude to the four nations. You know, they've been paying tribute, been ta you know, paying money of tribute. They maybe have been giving up some of their own people uh, to, to, to the four armies. Um, they're not free um, to use their own resources how they would because they're in servitude to the other four. It had been going on for 12 years. In the 13th year, they pull out. In the 14th year, the whole battle starts that we read about in in Genesis 14. And so there's apparently this massive battle, and it doesn't go too well for the five armies, the, those who are already in servitude. They lose. And when they tried to flee, it didn't go too well for them. Some fell in pits, we read about. In verse 11, we see, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're part of the five, took the possessions of, all of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. 
right? They had to turn tail and run. They didn't have the resources to win. They couldn't gain their freedom. All right, so what's the relevance of this to us today? Why talk about this one? Well, this one becomes important because it's closely connected with God's purposes in redemption, God's redemptive plan for the world. And we see this in the life of Abram, and we see that in Lot as they get entangled up with this. Verse 12 tells us what happened with Lot. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, the rest of the chapter tells us about Abram's dramatic rescue of Lot. Lot's his nephew. He loves Lot. Lot's father died, and, and Abram takes him under his wing, takes him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and brings him into the promised land that he might share in this promise together with him. He loves his nephew, and so it becomes his priority in order to save him. I mean, there are times where we have loved ones around us who are suffering or facing difficulties or, or people around us need help. You know, how will we be ready to help them? And what we want to do is look at some things from Abram's life that he did in his, uh, as he engaged the world, as he was able to come alongside his nephew Lot. Now, and these are things that we can learn from, we need to learn from. It's because our world is deeply affected by sin. Deeply affected by sin. Many continue to stand under the judgment of God for, for, for a godless eternity. Others are, are under the control of sin right now, making, making decisions which are self-destructive. And while sin was captive to these four nations, many today are held captive but captive by far worse enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Will you be ready to help? So what we want to do is to see what the Scripture says about our own preparedness for helping, coming alongside. Right? So we're going to look at three critical things that are drawing out from Abram's life here. The first thing we see is to decide not to get entangled by the world. Do not decide not to get entangled with the world. The big difference here between Lot and Abram here is that Lot decided to get entangled in the world, and Abram really stands outside of it. Now, where is Abram during this time? During our text, where is he? And you might remember that Genesis chapter 12 all the way through Genesis chapter 5 is all about Abram. I mean, you can hardly turn by a page or a verse without hearing about Abram. But if you look at these first 11 verses here, he's not even mentioned. Where is he? Well... That's right. That's exactly where he is. One thing, one thing we know he's not doing is he's not caught up in the mess of what's going on here, right? He hadn't gotten wrapped up in these bad alliances. I, I think he's living simply in the land of Canaan. He's living faithfully, apparently anonymously, quietly. He's worshiping God. He's growing his flocks. He's preparing for his future. I get a sense he's not facing a lot of pressure from his enemies, but he's quietly tending to his own business, and then he is able to, out of this, to come help Lot out of his need. He's able to, to help in this time of need. It's a good reminder to us that most of our life will be spent in quiet service to God. We're called to be faithful inside of those times. It's a starting point. In times of war, in times of, of ease and peace, 
or times of peace and ease, not in war, times of peace and ease, you know, those are times we grow in moral character. You know, we can't think that we're suddenly going to find moral character in, in an emergency. We're not going to suddenly find it when we're called upon it. It's something that's developed and cultivated over time. You never know what's going to happen and, and where you're going to need that character. It's something we build and we grow in. Now, Lot, on the other hand, where was he? He was living in Sodom when he got kidnapped by the enemy armies. Now, we saw last week how uh, Lot uh, was going after wealth and prestige. He wasn't bothered by the sinfulness of the people of the land that he was associating with. He wanted to improve his life. And it was a, as a result, he moved towards Sodom, and, and it brought him closer and closer to this drama as it would unfold in, in the years ahead. And he got snared by that conflict. Now, the Bible uh, doesn't say that it puts some responsibility on Lot. The Bible puts some responsibility on Lot. If you look back at verse 12, it says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, and notice the next five words here, who was dwelling in Sodom. Now, Lot had made a change, which had put him really in harm's way. If you go back to chapter 13, you see he was living near Sodom. But now we see that he had actually begun to live in Sodom. Even though there was a morally uh, decrepit uh, area, is that he had moved his tent in there and he was becoming comfortable in that place. Lot, Lot loved the world. And as a result, he got entangled with the world. And he ended up getting trapped up in the world. And there's a warning here, and the warning of the scripture bears out through all of its pages. We see it especially in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, how it describes sin. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now notice this, it says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay those things aside, it says. It goes on to say, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The NIV says, let us throw off everything that hinders us. And the sin that so easily entangles. You see a runner having his feet getting bound up in the run. Because that's what sin does. Sin entangles, it clings, it weighs us down, and Lot gets entangled with a sin he didn't have to get entangled with. We have a, we have a race to run. God has a purpose and he has a call for us. And if we get sucked up with the wrong people, he will get sucked up in their consequences of their crazy and immoral behavior as well. Right? We won't be surprised if we get sucked up into their drama. And that it costs you something. We're reminded what the scripture says, that bad company corrupts good character. We're reminded of the call to choose our friends well and our ability to avoid some of, some of uh, life's problems. You know, it reminded it's not just the friends that we spend physical time with, although that's really important, but also the friends we spend time with online. You know, the people that we let into our minds, into our hearts with the things that we connect with and how we connect with them. The choice of friends is so important. Now, Lot here, he'd become unproductive because he couldn't fix his, his situation. Right? We see this un ineffectiveness and unproductive in his life. It was a reminder to us that moral character matters. That our moral character affects who we are. It affects the people around us. It affects our readiness to respond in crisis. 
We respond to the crisis or do we get wrapped up in the drama of the world? One important thing that I've seen throughout my ministry is how um, anxiety or depression, how one of the most important things is to get out and get out serving other people. And now just as, as we get attentive to others, it, it just, it, it's encouraging, it builds us up. But we have to break away from the sinful and, and, the, and the, the numbing solutions that the world often proposes. We have to take the risk to get out there and to help in the small little ways, even if it's a small way. If it's a little way that doesn't seem very significant, but, but you think, you know what, this is one thing that I can do in the workplace, in the church, in the community. We live in the world, and if we're going to engage the world, though, we need some bit of separation from the world. We're not talking about a physical separation. We're talking about this, particularly the separation of our heart, the separation of our desires, the separation of our values. And sometimes that does require some sort of a physical separation. But, but we're not just separating away from, we're separating to. We're separating to the Lord. We're drawing near to him. And so as we draw near to him, we get ready to help our family. We get ready to help our community. We get ready to help in the workplace, the broader society. But as you're entangled in the world, you have less of a chance to help. So Abram, he, doesn't, he refuses to get entangled with the world. What does he do? Instead, he prepares himself for action. He prepares himself for action just that quiet way. Didn't know this was coming, but he prepared himself through life and that faithful living that when it came, he was ready. So that leads us to our second point, to prepare ourselves for action. We see this in verse 13 through 16. So if you look at uh, verse 13, you see how he's building his life, ready to act in this time of crisis. Verse 13, it says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and, and of Aner. These were the allies. <coughs> Excuse me. Allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his household, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So what we see here is that as soon as Abram heard his nephew was in trouble, he jumps into action. Right? Lot didn't have anyone else in his life. That's Abram's role. His father had died. Abram was his closest relative, like an adoptive father to him. They'd worked together, built their wealth together. Abram had taken Lot under his wing. He protected him. And even though they were separated this time, is that Abram never stopped caring for Lot, never stopped caring for his well-being. And so when, when Lot needs something, Abram goes to work. We don't see him making excuses, saying he's too busy, or blaming Lot for moving in with the Sodomites. He knows what he needs to do. He needs to lead his men into battle. Oftentimes, we just don't help because we're not ready to help. You see people who aren't saved who need to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've never learned how to share your faith and you don't know how to explain it to them. You see financial need, but your financial situation is a mess and, and you haven't saved anything to help somebody who is in, in, in time of need. Your children need a good advice, they need a good conversation, but there's no margin inside your life to talk with them. You're just not ready in order to help somebody who's in need. But because he had been active and growing in his life and his work, Abram is able to, to jump in and help Lot when he has need. We see it in the alliances that he built. Remember, Abram had no children at this point in his life. 
Children would be part of large tribes, would be helpful for protection. He didn't have that protection for himself, but he did have, we read in these passages, strategic alliances that help keep him safe. If we want to walk with the Lord, we're reminded that we need key alliances in our lives. Men need relation with other men. Women need relation with other women. Good relations with help, which help us grow in Christ together. They help us keep focused. That's why the Women's Fellowship this Saturday or the, or the, or the Men's One Day Retreat are, are so important. Again, just key alliances, key friendships in helping us stay focused on the Lord. We also see in verse 14 that, that Abram had trained his men to fight. Verse 14 says, Abram led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, to go in pursuit as far as Dan. So while he didn't have his own family at this point, he had, had no children, uh, he had been able to recruit and train men to, to build a uh, respectable security force to protect him, his property, his wife, um, as they were in the land of Canaan. And, and because he had trained them, because they were prepared for battle and for protection, that when Lot had a need, they were able to go and, and, to, and, and to go and rescue him and enter that battle. Now, so why could Abram get out there and help others? You know, he had his act together. He was able to carry his load. And he had extra to give. In the case of his nephew, Lot, his financial house was in order. He had allies to take his back. He was healthy enough to go to battle because he's 80 years old when he goes into battle here. His marriage was stable. He was devoted to God. He had a business who would provide for him. Uh, while he focused on his nephew, and he had trained men to follow him into battle. And one of the reasons why many of us find ourselves so unproductive and ineffective in our work is we just haven't gotten our basic life together. Right? We're creating messes, and we're not even able to, to, to put a hand to our own load. And so we're not able to carry the load of others. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. You know, the idea here is that we have, you know, we have a hand free. We have something available to carry another's burdens, another's difficulties. It's not that we're bearing all of our burdens all by ourselves. We're not built for that. We can't do that. You know, but, uh, but, you know, we work to do what we can in bearing our own, and then we come alongside our brothers and we help them to carry their own, knowing that together we're able to carry so much together inside the body of Christ. And so if we're going to do good, if we want to do good, we need to, to get our own lives together. You might want to pick one thing that'd be helpful and to, to, to work on that. It could be lots of things to work on, but sometimes one just might make the difference. Whether it's committing to daily worship, getting healthy, finishing college, or developing a profitable skill, saving some money, buying a house, Hospitality, getting off of porn and video games, stopping complaining. You know, find a, find a problem that you don't know how to solve and, and learn how you can address it. Getting married, starting a family, getting out of debt, learning how to share your faith, or even getting out of bed early on, on a Sunday so that you can come and disciple children. If we want to be ready for action, we need to get ready. And then when the time is right, to act. We need to act with the levels of depression, of anxiety, loneliness, illegal drugs, 
abortion, divorces, homeless people. I mean, there are a lot of needs. As a church, we, we live out our faith so we can be a light to the world, shining forth the light of Christ. We need to be ready to build a church to be that light. So Abram rescues Lot. Like I said, it could probably be a cool movie to see what happens. I mean, get in his own HBO Max series or something like that. But, but it's interesting, the text actually doesn't deal much with it, right? If you look at verses uh, 15 and 16, it basically just says, Abram rescued Lot. Look at verse 15. I don't think I have a screen, but you can follow along in your Bible. It says, and Abram divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Right? So it may not dwell much on the war. That's all it speaks about, Abram's part. But if you look at the next verses, it does dwell a lot on Abram and what he does after the battle. It really shows something important about his character. And it really brings us to our third point. Our third point is this, that we need to keep an eternal perspective. To keep an eternal perspective. Okay, that's because in verse 17, two people come to visit Abram. In verse 17, the king of Sodom comes out. And in verse 18, uh, Melchizedek comes out. He's the king of Salem and also a priest. So, and why they come out? I mean, Abram had helped them and their side to win a decisive battle. They'd rescued Lot. They'd, he'd, he'd rescued Lot. He'd brought back a lot of their possessions with him. Um, they're coming to see the booty that he brought back. And, and, and as they come to them to talk to him, Abram has two different responses to them. It's really interesting to see the responses that he has to these two men who come to him. But both show faith. Both show his faith. All right, so verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketelamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So let's look at Melchizedek first. He's a significant person in Bible theology. I mean, he's mentioned in Psalm 110. He's mentioned again in Hebrews 5, mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7. And he is a person who prefigures Christ. He is priest and he is a king. Verse 18 tells us he was king of Salem. This is the area which would later be uh, the city of Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that as the king of Salem, he is the king of peace. Now, what does Melchizedek do? Uh, we see that Melchizedek brings with him bread and wine, and he offers this blessing to God. And as the text reminds us, he's not just a king, but in doing this, he's also a priest. Psalm 110 verse 4 repeats that, that he is a priest. But he wasn't a pagan priest. He recognized the Lord Yahweh, recognized the God of Abraham as being the only true God. What does he say in verse 19? And Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See what he says, Melchizedek shows he's a true priest, he's a worshiper of the true God, that he wants to bring praise to the Lord. And for Abram, what, where, what Melchizedek uh, blesses him with and praises uh, God for is right in line with his own convictions, with his own belief, his own values, his own worship. Abram sees that Melchizedek is from God. And then he sees that to give to Melchizedek is ultimately to give to the Lord himself. 
Verse 20 says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is one of those passages that we see a, a tithe demonstrated, a tithe, 10% of the, of what, of the, of, of the victory spoils, 10% of what he had gained in that great victory that goes to, to Melchizedek, king of Salem and high priest uh, of God. It's, it's one of those passages that shows this 10% standard of giving inside of the church. I mean, it could be more. You know, the New Testament talks about cheerful and generous giving. Um, but, you know, we see this, this sizable, uh, gen- generous percentage which is given in worship of God. You know, why does Abram do it? Because he sees that he has been blessed with his victory. How is it that he can honor God with his victory? How can he recognize that the Lord was the only reason that he had, had won this decisive victory? And he gives 10% of his treasures to this priest in honor of the Lord. I mean, that's what we do when we see God prospering us. We see God blessing us. We see what God has provided for us. You know, we give back that portion to him in worship. And to say, ultimately, it all belongs to him. It all comes from him. Every hope we have um, is, is from his generous hand. So because Melchizedek is a priest of the true God, you know, Abram is happy to give to him. But his response to the king of Sodom is is different. Look at verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. See, he wants the prisoners, he wants the women, the slaves from the battle. He thinks, Abram, go ahead and keep the money, keep the victory spoils. But but what's Abram's response? Verse 22, he wants none of it. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. See, Abram is trusting God to provide for him 100%. He didn't go into this battle in order to gain possessions. He knew he already had enough. He already knew he had the promises of God. God had already been abundantly providing for him. He wouldn't have fought a battle for that reason. He went in to rescue his nephew, Lot. I mean, it really is a picture of of doing things for God's glory, doing things for the good of others around us, and not just self-interest. Abram didn't ask, what's in it for me? Right? What was in it for him was the glory of God and the good of his, of, of his nephew. He looked at God's glory, and he didn't want that glory to be stolen and, and, and for any man to claim any, benef- you know, any part in that. It was all God's hand. You know, it really makes us ask that question is, uh, what would you do just because you're obeying God? You know, will you do something even if there's no financial or, or physical or earthly gain to it? You know, we, where do we look for our reward? We look for our reward from God. Our ultimate reward that we'd have is to God, for God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master and receive the inheritance which is from him. We look to please him. So Abram is not just doing good for good's sake, though. He's really doing it for the glory of God. And we see that in his response. Abram knew that God would provide for him. He knew he'd be abundantly blessed by God, and he wants God to get that glory. And he's not going to take any of God's reputation by taking anything in the battle. And so he sends it back to his rifle owner. 
This is Abram being a blessing to the nations. He's full from God's provision. He can give to his men. He can return the stolen goods back to the people they belong to. And you see Abram's priority here. He doesn't want the corrupt wealth of the world. He wants to worship God. He's a man who's chosen how he's going to live. He's a man who's chosen to put God first in his life. And he wants to honor God so that when a chance to honor him shows up, he gives generously. And when he risks getting entangled in the world, he refuses. His wealth, his reward is in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you will make many of the big decisions of your life ahead of time. Before you get to that point, keep your perspective on what God has already done for you. Resolve ahead who you're going to live for and what you're going to do. I love what Colossians 3.1 says. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The idea is, in Colossians 3.1, is that Christ Jesus is raised from the dead, and he's in heaven right now, and that is where your life is hidden. That's where your treasure is. It's in him, and your life is hidden with him. And so as we look towards what God is doing in our lives, what God will do, we realize where our real treasure is, is right there with Christ. We call that an eternal perspective, a vision for the future, keeping in mind eternity and not just life in this world. It's a reminder that you already have a life, and that is in Jesus Christ, that you don't have to create one for yourself, but what you need to do is to walk in the life that God has sent Jesus Christ to purchase for you, to walk in the life that God has foreordained that you'd walk in, is to see those good works that he's prepared for you that you could do them. And so you look for that reward which is in heaven and beyond any reward of this life. Decide ahead of time what kind of person you will be. Make your life about worship. Make your life about moral integrity in the Lord. Make your life about the gospel. And that way, when you have a choice to make, you don't have to think about it. I remember this verse in Job where Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. He made a promise. He decided ahead of time, how is he going to act? And he even made a promise to his own eyes to say, you know, I'm going to live with the purity of my eyes. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness back at Luke chapter 4, he didn't have to think about his answers because he answered from the depth of his own, uh, depth of his own being. He knew what he would do. He knew who he'd serve. Do you know what you will do on Sunday morning? Do you know what you will do with giving? Do you know what you will do with debt? Do you know what you will do with sexual purity? Have you made up your mind ahead of time so that when the time for action and the time of witness comes, you'll be ready? Decide ahead of time who you'll be. Surround yourself with like-minded people and become that person by faith. So as we wrap up, as we come to the Lord's Supper, we remember that Abram points forward to someone even greater than him. He points to Jesus. He points to Jesus. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ going on a rescue mission, right? He died. He came to this world and he died to rescue you from sin. He's the one who, who stormed the enemy's gates in order to set his prisoners free. He did it in his death on the cross, paying the penalty of sin. 
So that, that debt which uh, was against them, that, 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 that list of transgressions would be removed, would be taken away, which would be on Jesus Christ himself. And the things that entangled them and, and held his people back, that those would be taken away and removed. He would take them on himself as he died on that cross. And so maybe you realize how you've become entangled with sin. Maybe you see how you've been unable to help others because you've been wrapped up with problems you've created. Jesus came to rescue you from your sin. You don't have to stay there. How do you get free? You go to Jesus. You go to Jesus Christ by faith. See, he's the one who didn't get entangled with sin. We get entangled, right? We will get entangled. We have, and we will. But he didn't. And as one who didn't get entangled, he he prepared a way of salvation. He did it for our eternal good. He paid the penalty of our sin. He removed our guilt, and he rose from the dead to bring us into our family. You can come to him, and he will receive you. As you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I love, we're gonna sing the same at the end, but I love this line from the hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? And it reminds me of the imprisonment that we all had and how Christ set us free. It says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with lights. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? What amazing love indeed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have so many opportunities to make the gospel known. We have so many opportunities to help people around us. We miss out on so many of them. We're not as prepared as we should be. We get entangled with the world. Our life is fixed. Our our, our minds are fixed on this life and, and not on eternity. And we just ask, oh Lord, would you forgive us? Father, would you use us to minister to those around us, those who are held captive of sin, in their decisions, in judgment, in the challenges of life. Father, the anxieties and the depressions, the sicknesses. And Father, as we see our opportunity to help, help us to point them to Jesus, the one who came to set the captives free. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand together and we'll sing our closing, or we'll sing our communion hymn.